Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Allison Bechdel. She's an author and cartoonist, but her name perhaps is most recognizable because of the Bechdel test. It's become the litmus test for gender representation in Hollywood, asking whether a film features two female characters that, one, have names of their own, and two, discuss a topic other than a man. The idea was born out of one of Bechdel's early comic strips, Dykes to Watch Out For. It's the kind of thought-provoking observational comedy that has come to define her work since. Like her 2006 memoir, Fun Home, which was transformed into a Tony Award-winning musical. The tragic comedy documents Bechdel's upbringing in a funeral home and her coming out to her gay but closeted father. Now Bechdel has given us a new graphic memoir fitting for the year 2021. The book, titled The Secret to Superhuman Strength, documents Bechdel's obsession with fitness, weightlifting, skiing, biking, yoga, all of which might sound like a fun and breezy read. But it's also a deep introspection on self-care, our $100 billion fitness industry, and yes, our mortality. Allison, welcome. Thank you, Kara. Happy to be here. So the first question I want to ask you is kind of an odd one, but I want to know what took you so long to figure out the secret to superhuman strength. (laughs) I think it's death. I think that's the Yes, yes, you put your finger on it. Accepting one's inevitable demise. Yeah. That's kind of the key. You know, I grew up in a funeral home, so I was around dead people, like, as a matter of course growing up, which I think was a really good thing. You know, people would protect children from funerals and stuff, but um, not my family. We were right there. I've thought this forever. I don't know if you know this. My dad died when I was really little. Um, So I've had a uh, long-term relationship with death and sudden death, especially. Yeah, of uh, cerebral hemorrhage when I was five. Um, I have apps that give me quotes about death all day and stuff like that. And I'm actually a pretty happy person because of it, I think. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, I was starting to write this book as my mother was dying. And she was reading a wonderful book by Helen Vendler at the time about poets last works and how their final works had something revelatory to say about death. And there was this great poem that it quoted, which I now can't remember at all. It was some like metaphysical poet, but he talked about how as you grow weaker, you grow stronger. Mm -hmm. I got to memorize that quote, man. That was kind of my model going into this book. So talk about the initial idea for your book, uh, to do a, quote, light, fun memoir about my athletic life that I could bang out quickly. But it, it isn't a light, fun memoir, is it? No, no. I mean, really, I had I was kind of burnt out from writing these intense family stories. And I wanted to write something that would be fun and that would, more importantly, not take very long because these other books had taken like many years. But that didn't happen. This book took lo- longer than either of those. And it was rough sledding. It was hard figuring out how to tell this story or what the story even was. But but what made it so difficult? Well, um, in part because I sort of got stuck. I sort of lost 
my way with it. When I go into these memoirs, I don't know what's going to happen. Like they're very much voyages of discovery. If I had an outline and, you know, a thesis statement, (laughs) there would be no real point to writing the book. I would already know what I needed to know. So I was going to figure something out. And the more I got into it, the more I realized this was a really vast topic. And it was, it had a lot to do with my own aging. I'd just gone through menopause and was starting to really reckon with the fact that I was not going to ever get stronger or faster again. This is like, I'm on the downhill slope. Uh, So it's just, that was very, a very sobering realization. Mm -hmm. And I got led into all these other writers' work, um, people who also were seeking some kind of transcendence through physical activity or being in nature, the, the romantics, the transcendentalists, the beats. I started reading all these people's biographies and getting caught up in their lives and what what was a life anyhow? How, how do we know what our lives mean, if they mean anything? So it started becoming kind of a sprawling project. And as I was living my own life and trying to figure out what was happening, I had to figure out how to tell the story of it. So you're one of those people who, who exercise is critically important. I have a lot of friends like that where exercise is sort of their drug of choice in a lot of ways. You know, I actually don't know a lot of people like that. It was I kind of wish I did. It was exciting when I found out you were a runner. Is that your main thing? No, I try everything. I'm polyamorous around the exercise <laughs> situation. Um, right now, for example, I'm going to show you, I'm wearing a, a continuous glucose oh. monitor. Yeah, you were talking about this. Yeah, the Silicon Valley guys are doing it all the time. So I just do whatever they do and, and hope it doesn't kill me because <laughs> they can't bear the idea of dying. I know. What is that about? Why, why are they so hell-bent on not dying? Like, who wants to be on this planet in 70 more years. Well, let's, I'm asking you that because this is something you were doing. You thought it was critically important to your mental health, to your physical state, to staving <laughs> off dying. But what, one of the things you said is on yoga, you write, we're a nation of giant toddlers dragging our blankets and bottles everywhere we go. Yeah, the yoga boom has been really interesting to see. I started doing yoga in the late 80s when it was just starting to take off in that kind of street corner way. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't focused on spirituality, but it felt like somehow a spiritual practice more than just fitness. But all of these activities that I write about have have been ways in which I have attained at least some feeling of myself subsiding, quieting down, and allowing me to just be part of everything. And that's such a great feeling. So you went through a lot. You went through karate, you went through yoga, you went through meditation, which I think is kind of an exercise, a mind exercise at least. Um, You bought all the different gear. You fell in love with a Patagonia fleece. Um, Each chapter in your book covers a decade. And and in it, you actually chronicle the development of the fitness industry. And now it's worth about $100 billion. And so as a longtime workout buff, what's it been like to watch everyone else move into it? Well, you know, people need to move. So that's great. People are finding ways to move. It makes me sad that it's been so commodified, but that's how the world works. I mean, anyone can figure out how to get exercise without shelling out for a Peloton. Do you not have a Peloton? I don't. Because? Uh, It's expensive. (laughs) I would rather do something outside. Have you done things like berries or orange theory? I I don't know. I'm getting too old for a lot of these new things. What what even is orange theory? Like they put your numbers up on the wall? Yeah. And then you get into an orange zone. It's all, and you have a, you know, you have a heart monitor on you. I've done all these, obviously. Um, And you get to the zone and then in that zone, you get fit, I guess. That's the theory, the orange theory. Well, that's a good idea. (laughs) 
Uh, CrossFit, that's a big thing among tech people. I have always wanted to do CrossFit. I have not done it. Seems like you would be a good CrossFit candidate. Well, I, you know, I have a sad weakness, Kara. I have a weird heart thing that makes me have to frequently stop what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I get like rapid heartbeat. So I never wanted to go take a CrossFit class because I knew it would happen during the class. And then I'd have to like stand aside and feel like a big weakling. How about Mirror? Have you tried that? I've seen the ads for it. I saw a very funny Saturday Night Live skit about it. Uh, That just seems too creepy to me. Yeah, that they're in your house. You wouldn't do that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you have fitness. I have gadgets. I think I'm a gadget person and I do that. I like gadgets. Do you use them? What are your favorite ones? I don't use them. That's the problem. I like my yoga sling that I can hang upside down in. I bought some TRX straps uh, when the pandemic hit thinking, oh, I can't go to the gym. I'm going to use these straps. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> where, are they, where are they now? Where are your straps? They're, just... They're hanging right outside my office door. I brush past them every time I go in and out of the room. They're not as satisfying as weights. I, I really miss being able to go to the gym and just lift weights. Are you planning to get back to the gym? I'm not sure what to do about that. I mean, people were all saying, you know, gyms aren't going to exist anymore. This is the end of the gym. But I don't think that's true. Why is that? I do. Do you? It's like the end of movie theaters. Not completely, but it's it's done. Streaming and big screens and in-home stuff, Peloton. I mean, I know I'm just thinking of that communal experience of the gym. Not that I'm a hugely communal person, but there is something about just being around the energy of other people doing a workout. But I guess you could say the same thing about a movie theater and no one seems to miss that too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, explore creativity, work, and mental health. You also use exercise to explore how you approach creativity in your work. Um, were you aware of this parallel when you started the memoir? Or is it something you only figured out through writing? I had a glimmer of it, but it didn't seem to fit. Like, is this a book about exercise or is this a book about creativity? And so I spent a lot of time just, you know, beating myself up for having too much to write about. Um, Mm -hmm. The structure of the book is it tells the story of my life from when I was born to up to the moment of finishing the book. So it goes through six decades. And as I look at the different physical activities I was doing at these various points in my life, I was also starting to see what was happening in my creative life and learning, you know, who, who knows what cause and effect actually is, but I was certainly seeing these coincidences. You know, I feel like Doing karate as a young woman living in New York City was a really such an important thing. Um, karate was so hard. Really learning how to be disciplined with a tough teacher was an amazing experience. And I feel like it translated very much into being able to get my act together enough to focus on my cartoons and take them out into the world. And I don't know if I would have done that without that model of, you know, just discipline. Yeah, doing something over and over and over until you get it right. Um, so both the previous books were mostly monochrome. This one has a lot of beautiful colors. Were you were you cranking up the resistance knob on your art? How did you think about that? <laughs> I was definitely cranking up that knob. I knew I wanted to do something not just different from the other books, but really it had to be like up a notch, you know, and full color is just something I needed to do. But then I actually didn't really have time to do it. Finally, my deadline was really coming down hard on me and I knew I wasn't going to have time to both write I mean, the book was written at that point, and I knew I wasn't going to have time to do all the drawing and the coloring. So my partner pitched in to help me. My partner, Holly, is a painter, and I showed her what I needed her to do, and she was like, yeah, I can do that. So we worked together. We collaborated, which was a very unusual experience for me, and we are still together. So 
It went pretty well. <laughs> I never work with people I go out with. But the color was in order to what? What was the message you were trying to get by using that? Well, I felt like this story was so much about the outdoors, about nature, about vitality, about a certain kind of exuberant attitude. It just had to be in color. You know, that just was uh, a no-brainer. The memoirs, when you're writing these, you're giving enormous amounts of um not just information, but intimacy with your readers, for sure. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I I go deeply inside myself in order to tell these stories, in in order to like come back to the world and say, here's my story. I hope you can use this. And I love that people seem to find them useful or relate to them in some way. But yeah, it's, it's always been hard for me to separate that work life from my own private personal life. I obviously have a very blurry line between them as a memoirist. And I'm getting a little better at understanding that my work is not my life. My work is like a part of my life. My work is not me. It's part of me. Um, But it's still a bit of a struggle. But you also mine a lot of your life and you write about your father. You know, obviously that's that that got so much attention, fun home, but you wrote about your mother. And in this, you're writing a lot about yourself. I am, but I'm also controlling it. And it's just me talking, you know, I'm not having to really listen to anyone else respond to it in the moment. And that's the trick of being in a relationship. You've really got to see your partner, let your partner be a full separate subject. And I feel like that's something many, many people struggle with. We all are projecting things onto our partners. We want them to be a certain way, you know, we want them to be a, almost a version of ourselves. And I've had to do a lot of work. Uh, I just terminated therapy after 30 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Tell me about that. So, <laughs> uh, I think I think I'm done. I think I'm as fixed as I'm going to get. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> So one of the things you also write about in the book is your dependency on sleeping pills. You talk about alcohol a lot. Um, You call them small red uh, subfarb capsules and on alcohol, this dependency had an inverse relationship to how much you were exercising. How did you think about that dynamic? Man, I, you know, I I realize now that I was just kind of self-medicating my anxiety. These sleeping pills that this doctor gave me were in fact something called oxazepam, a benzodiazepine, which was an anti-anxiety pill very addictive. Fortunately, I didn't keep like taking more and more of them to get the same effect because they wouldn't give me enough. But I did keep taking them and having a smaller and smaller reaction to it. But I took them for years and I feel like they really started to mess me up. Like I think it affected my memory. And certainly I was also drinking more and more during this period. It was was a time when I was just very anxious it all started when I was trying to write Fun Home, trying to write this book about my father that felt like a real a leap, both creatively and just in terms of my family, like negotiating how to you know air these family secrets in public. Uh, it was an intense thing to go through. And I started drinking as a way to just manage my anxiety. Uh, and it was only recently that I was able to like wind that all down. And it was, it was when I started running again. Mm-hmm. I hurt my knee and stopped running for like almost 20 years. But recently I started running again and uh, it was amazing to me to get that feeling back, that feeling of calm and focus and even euphoria 
that I had forgotten all about. There's something about running that does that in a way that all the other things I've done don't do. It's, and I think it has to do with the impact, you know, with just like slamming your body into the earth. Yeah. There's a whole movement among Silicon Valley people about walking around without your shoes on. Oh, that sounds good. Look it up. I know them all. Um, <laughs> but when you think about running, what made you go back to it? Because I think you were looking for transcendence through exercise and you come to an acceptance rather than a transcendence, I think. Well, as I was writing this book and sort of struggling with it and what, how I was going to tell the story, I tried a lot of new things. I tried Qigong classes and Alexander technique and rock climbing and mountain biking and a bunch of stuff, thinking that one of these activities was going to give me a handle on the book, some kind of metaphor. But all along, I was starting to run again. And that actually happened because as I was beginning this project, I realized I needed to get a Fitbit because everyone was talking about Fitbits back then. And I needed to get on that bandwagon. And I, I loved the whole walking thing. And one day, in order to get my steps in, I, I was running out of time. So I did it on a treadmill and I ran. Mm-hmm. And my knee injury didn't hurt and I felt great. My mind was suddenly clear. And so that's when I started running again. I was like 54 at that point. And very slowly over the next couple of years, I just started running more and more and feeling better and better. So how often do you run? I I don't run enough. When I was running as much as I would like to run, it was like 25 miles a week, maybe like three or four. I'd, I'd like to run every other day, like four to six miles. That would be great. But I don't always have time for that. What are you doing that you can't run? Working. I'm kidding. Promoting my book. <laughs> Promoting your book. That's a fair point. Okay. So one of the things you also address the memoir, but one of the things you don't really touch on is body image at the same time. You never talk about. I know. I very studiously avoided any mention of body image in this book. Which is a big part of fitness culture. Why did you leave that out? I thought for a woman to write a book about fitness and not talk about body image was probably the strongest statement I could make more than any little diatribe I, I could write. It was better to just leave it out. And honestly, I just don't think about it that much. I I mean, I would be lying if I said I had zero concern about how I looked, but it's certainly not what motivates me to exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like people who exercise for some extrinsic reason like that and not for just the joy of of moving and doing stuff, it's not going to be fun and it's not going to be successful, you know? And certainly exercise, I think it's been proven, is not really a great way to lose weight. You know, the more you exercise the more you want to eat. Right. And you don't write about eating at all either in this book. That's also not a part of it, diet and nutrition. No, I mean, I love eating and food and maybe I'll write a whole other book about that. Okay, that sounds good. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app, You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Glennon Doyle, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Allison Bechdel after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. 
Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsniff. I'm a journalist at The New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Let's talk about some of your earlier work. You published a comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, which I love for 25 years. Now you're in the early stages of a TV adaptation of it. I'm thrilled about this. What's it like to revive those characters? Oh, it's really interesting. You know, at first, my plan with this show was to update it, to bring the characters up into the present moment. But I was having a really hard time getting my mind around that um, because I feel like they were so much creatures of their era. You know, it was this tight-knit community because the whole world was against them in a way that's not happening in the same way. So now I've gone back to doing it as a period piece and setting it in like the early 90s, which is really exciting to me to go back and revisit that period. Um, It's funny to go back to that pre-digital moment before we had everything constantly recording itself as we did it. Mm -hmm. And just to think of that political moment too, you know, um, it was in the middle of AIDS. There was just a very different attitude, so much casual homophobia thrown around in the culture. And this LGBTQ movement was really starting to take off and cohere. It was exciting. Yeah, pre-gay marriage. No one had marriage even on their horizon. Right. It's kind of interesting because when you go back to that, you know, you think of even before that, the Reagan administration said trees cause pollution. I don't know if you remember that. And you go to that and you sort of think, you know, fast forwarding to the Trump administration, it all seems like quaint. You're like, oh, those are easy villains to deal with. I know. Like one set of villains becomes quaint when the next one comes along. Like Reagan seemed quaint when Bush 2 came along. And Bush 2 is like a paragon of a statesman compared to Trump. So who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah. You sort of like, nice paintings. I like you better. Come back. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of him as a cartoonist? Maybe he should call them cartoons. Yeah, maybe so. So are you writing news stories for these characters for Dykes to Watch Out For? Are they going to stay in that period for people to remember? You're not bringing them into the present. No, it'll remain in the period. And I'm also centering it around a different character. And when I was writing it, Mo was the main character because I sort of felt like she was my avatar. But over the period of, over the 25 years that I wrote that comic strip, I kind of morphed from Mo into uh, Sydney, the evil women's studies professor. Uh, and so now <laughs> like it's, she's going to be the central character. Why is that? Because I just have a more of a feeling for her. I feel like I can access her character and her family story uh, 
it's just exciting to me in a way that Mo's story isn't for whatever reason. But you aren't going to update. You're not going to do new characters no. at all to create a strip. So it's like you're not going to do like the L word and suddenly we're in the 2000s. Kind of no, 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 no. This will be going back to the original characters. One of the other things that never changes is uh, issues around women. And the Bechdel test came out in one of your dykes to watch out for strips, by the way. Um, basically, a character jokes. If she only sees a movie, if it satisfies three rules, it has two women talking to each other about something other than a man. The test was elevated along with the Me Too movement uh, after Harvey Weinstein. It's been kind of a shorthand for representation. There's even a website that rates movies against these rules. Are, are you surprised that it still is so relevant? Well, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote that in 1985. Like that was the mm-hmm. kind of stuff me and my lesbian feminist friends would joke about because there were no movies then. But I, I do think it has changed. I think there there's a lot more movies that pass that test now. And the fact that it has become this mainstream phenomenon that people talk about is a huge sign of progress. I feel like, you know, the mainstream has caught up to where lesbians were back in the 80s. Right. But who knows where it's all going to go? What do you imagine the Bechdel test would be now? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it's still a it's still a viable question. And I know there's many variations on it, like do two African-American characters talk to each other about something besides a white person? Like, uh, there's... Lots of versions of it. Um, you know, it's just all about subjectivity and whose stories are told. Just always worth analyzing. So one of the things that it seems like, though, is your work has gotten actually less political over the decades. You know, there's little things on the edges of your cartoons, but they were very squarely political. Um, and it comes up here in, and in your new book, mostly as markers of time. You know, stress from the 2016 election spurred you to run more, for example, What's it like being an artist now? Uh, well, that, you know, honestly, that was, I think, part of my struggle with this book was, especially during the Trump years, like just feeling so impotent. Like, why am I writing a memoir about fitness when the world is in flames? It just felt crazy. And I don't know how any artist functioned during those years. Um, but eventually I kind of got my shit together, thanks to the running you know, that like helped me from sinking into a total pit of despair. But no, my work has gone from the the very political commentary world of Dykes to Watch Out for into these much more interior, internal uh, stories about family and and the self, uh, which feel like in a way still have some of the, some political resonance, because to me, it's like, it's it's very much about self-determination. It's about the way our parents can occupy us and take us over and how we have to resist that and how difficult that is to do to overthrow them. And uh, I feel like maybe I'm coming back out into the world a bit more through this latest book. Do you feel pressure to address politics now or responsibility? I I do. I'm sort of excited about getting back to Dykes for that reason. Even though it will be looking back in time, I feel like it's still going to be a commentary on the present and how we got here. You know, mainly I, I, I want to be an entertainer. I think of myself as an entertainer. Um, mm-hmm. I like to think I'm entertaining the troops, like the people fighting the good fight. So I want to give them stuff that feeds them. And so I think it will be good to get back into a little bit of a political sphere. 
So now, just speaking of which, the 80s, it feels like that again, again, there's a slew of anti-LGBTQ bills now being proposed in state legislators. I think uh, the number in the hundreds, some are anti-trans athletes, uh, but there, it seems yeah. to be back. Um, it was marriage bills then, now it's bathroom bills or these uh, student athlete bills. Um, what are your thoughts on this wave? Because it feels like a bad feeling that I had way back in the 80s and 90s. It is a bad feeling. You know, I... I spent a lot of my youth thinking society is really just moving forward, but I, I really feel much less sure about that. Yeah, all these anti-trans bills are horrifying, and they're clearly just hoping people aren't going to stand up for trans people. And I, it's so far, it seems like people are standing up. So mm-hmm. that's encouraging. But what do you imagine this is going towards? What are you scared of? Oh, I'm just worried about everything, Kara. I'm just worried about living in a fascist authoritarian state, you know. Uh, I don't know where all, all this is going. I mean, we've had like like a temporary stay, but, you know, there's these people are out there who believe Trump is still president, you know. That's really frightening. And I, I don't know how, how we are supposed to cope with that. Mm, yeah, they never give up. That's the issue. In our last interview, the action around Fun Home musical made you a household name besides getting a MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, have you gotten more used to success and fame? At the time, you said you weren't particularly comfortable with it. Yeah, and I'm still struggling with that. I think, you know, I formed my identity as a young person completely on the outside, like as a cartoonist, as a lesbian. I was just this utterly marginal figure you know, banging on the door, asking to be let in to the culture. And that, and then I did. I, I did get let in to a certain extent. And, you know, it's funny. You just find yourself becoming complicit with things, you know, having a Hollywood agent, having a big publishing company, having all these, you know, corporations connected somehow to what you're doing. It's just interesting to watch that happen and to try and fight against letting it really change what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm really successfully doing that, you know? Meaning how could you be the resistance if you don't resist? Yes. Yes. Um, there's a pressure, the more famous wh- wh- or whatever the word is that you get to win people over and to connect with people and to tell accessible stories. And I'm trying to do that, but I know, I don't know if I, I want to make sure I don't go over the line and do something that's not genuine. You have to be very careful. You do, or else you get the power and then use it for the things you want to have happen. Yeah. I don't mind doing that. I don't mind pushing people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind you doing that either. I'm, I'm okay. happy for you to have the power. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so what impact do you think the pandemic and lockdowns have had on our relationship to outdoors as a society? It seems like going for a walk was the most popular activity last year. Do you think everyone's catching up to you? Because this was something that wasn't um, happening as much as we rushed through our world. I hope that we can hang on to some of the upsides of this pandemic. You know, people just slowing their lives down, mainly. That was an amazing experience for me. I mean, I know obviously not everyone had that luxury. I mean, yeah, people spending more time outside, just learning to stop running around doing pointless errands. You know, what the hell is everyone doing in their cars all the time? Just stay home and go out and look at a tree. It will really do so much for you. Is that your new exercise, looking at a tree? Yeah, yeah. Last night, tree looking. I went outside after dinner. When in the old days, I would have been like drinking beer and watching Netflix. I went outside, and the frogs were trilling, and the birds were singing their serenades. It was 
this crazy symphony that I would never even have heard. And it was amazing. It was like this blessing, like it just fed my whole spirit. Yeah, I, w- I would have done that, but we have cicadas here and Marin Easton was on, so I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'm literally the polar opposite lesbian to you. Um, so um, when you think about that, when you are sort of at one with nature, do you feel like you have more to write about as a memoirist? You know, in some ways I feel like less. I feel like it just, my mind just goes quiet and silent. I feel like I'm moving toward just a kind of blank page. <laughs> I feel like that would be... I think it's called the Dharma. You're going into the Dharma. Isn't that right? Is that correct? If I get that right? Yeah. The Dharma of the blank page. I'm just going to write... My next book is going to be all empty. And then say, don't you see it? <laughs> what? Oh, well, then you really need to like become more a transcendent. So when you think about comic strips and graphic novels, what are you excited about? And are there any artists that you follow or are inspired by? I love the the nib, that cartoon website, it's like a progressive comic site with lots of really great work on it. Some of it's just funny. Some of it's like deep dive nonfiction, like journalistic comics that are great. I think that stuff is really wonderful, you know, at explaining complicated things going on in the world. I live near a place called the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is this wonderful MFA program. And they're they're always doing projects. They just... um came up with a comic book project about healthcare. It's called GoFundMe Won't Fix Healthcare. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, there's all kinds of great uh, ways that comics are explaining the world to people. Do you have any artists where you look at and you go, wow, that's amazing? I've been reading a lot of Gabrielle Bell lately, who is kind of a diary cartoonist, where she just writes a lot of stuff about her everyday life. I, I love her work. I love Kate Beaton's funny history comics. Park of Vagrant is the name of her strip. Mm-hmm. Are you ever going to do an NFT? <laughs> I'd buy it. I well, if you would buy it, I will. I will do one. But would you imagine doing one? I can't. I'm still struggling to get my mind around this idea. I don't really get it. It's just art sold through the internet, essentially. But what do you have? You just have like a little certificate that it's genuine. Yeah. Why is the Mona Lisa worth anything? Yeah. I hate art. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba Elarbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a complete set of Jane Fonda workout videos, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.